Well, today we continue our series through the book of Genesis, and the series is called Beginnings. Uh, Specifically, we cover Genesis chapters 1 through 11. And again, this book is a book that covers the beginnings of things, whether it be the beginning of the universe as God created it, and then in Genesis chapter 2, the beginning of man created in the image of God, and then as we looked at the last couple weeks, the beginning of sin in man. And there we looked at the fall of Adam and Eve. And we saw there that along with everything else that God gave his good and wonderful creation, that is Adam and Eve, he gave them one prohibition. One prohibition. And he said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that prohibition was basically God's call for Adam and Eve to not only live under his lordship, but then also to love his lordship. It was a call for discipleship. It was a call very much for Adam and Eve to follow me, God would say. Do not eat of this. But they disobeyed. And eventually they sinned against God. In other words, they rebelled against him, not doing what he desires. And they determined for themselves what was good and what was evil. And in effect, they became gods unto themselves. And according to the Bible, it says there that man has never been the same since. After the fall of Adam and Eve, everyone after would be born into sin and possess the sin nature. And so the chapters that we've been looking at, Genesis 3 to Genesis 6, verse 8. It's basically a commentary on that. You're looking at this, the rapid spread of sin like an infectious disease uh, from Adam and Eve to their descendants, to their immediate descendants, and then on to the rest of the world. And so you begin there with Adam and Eve in the garden, created to reflect God's image to the world, to live underneath his lordship and to love him and experience his blessing. And you see their fall right there. And then if you go over, to go ahead and turn, turn to Genesis chapter 6. So Moses is the author of Genesis, and here he's just making it so absolutely clear, being led by the Holy Spirit to write Scripture, God's inerrant word. He makes it so clear to just tell this picture, this devastating picture and story of sin. Genesis 6. Verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you just begin with one, with two people. One man, really, is held responsible for sin. Adam, and then, and then eventually in 6-5 there, you're left with the whole entire earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil Continually, And sadly, the story of Cain and Abel, which is what we look at today, is one spiral in the downward spiral that tells the story of man under the grips of sin. Cain and Abel is just one spiral of this downward spiral. Chapter 4, though, starts off really positive. And if you remember, there in Genesis chapter 3, we are left with great expectation. So Adam and Eve, they sin against God. God then comes along when he calls Adam and Eve to account and he finds out that Satan in the form of a serpent is the one who tempted Eve and he curses him. Go ahead and turn there. Genesis chapter three, verse 15. 
This is God here cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So already from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, we're, we're, we're given this promise, the first promise of the gospel there. And the way that Satan himself and sin would be defeated is through this great battle. And the champion would indeed be the champion, but not without injury. But we're, we're left looking forward, right? We're left w- wondering, when is the seed of the woman going to arrive? Because that's going to be the one who defeats sin and death, the seed of the serpent. And then so we're left wondering the question, when would he come and who is it that would restore man's relationship to God? Because after the sin of Adam and Eve, you're left thinking, knowing very clearly that man's relationship to the earth is messed up. Man's relationship to his fellow man is messed up. And then especially man's relationship to God is clearly messed up. And there God judges man and sends him out of his presence. So who's going to come and rectify the situation to make man's relationship with the ground, fellow man, and with God, most importantly, right again? And just like last week, we're going to walk through the passage and note various things along the way. Look there in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. This is great anticipation, okay? Everyone's, you know, everyone's waiting, leaning forward. Now, Adam knew his wife. There, the, the, that term know is a term for sexual knowledge, sexual intimacy. Now, Adam and Eve, they knew each other. And she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the Lord's help. So it seems to be here that she becomes pregnant and she recognizes that this is from God. And, and his name there, Cain, is I have gotten, or, or otherwise translated, I have brought forth. Or, or I have received. And here they're thinking that this baby, this baby named Cain, that he in fact would be the serpent crusher, the one to, to crush Satan's skull under his feet. And can you imagine what that, what, what, how much excitement they would have had? I mean, not only are they having a baby, and not only that, but they're the first couple to ever have a baby. So they're experiencing all these new things like what is this thing growing inside of me and seeing his, his arms move around in the tummy and the womb. But then on top of that, to have this expectation that the, the deliverer would come through the woman, that he would be born of woman. And so they say, uh, so they name him, I have gotten. Of course, that would be, one would assume, gotten the serpent crusher. And then he goes on and says, and again, she bore his brother, Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. Um, and then it's interesting there in verse 3. It says there, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So somehow, you know, th- th- there in this chapter... Uh, there's a lot of stuff that is not revealed. So here, it's not really revealed how Cain and Abel knew to naturally bring this offering of the fruit of the ground or of the firstborn of the flock and their fat portions to the Lord. They're, they're offering sacrifices here and offerings to God. So presumably God had told them. Uh, but here Moses says, look, we're going to focus on the main things here. 
but just because we're not told specifically, like, how did they know? Or eventually we get to, well, where did Cain get his wife? You know, we ought not be afraid of thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, the authority of Scripture is being washed away because we simply don't know these facts. Um, there are very good explanations for them. But keep in mind, Moses here is determined to tell the history of the sin of man, the fall of man and the spread of sin like an infectious disease to, to Adam and Eve's immediate descendants and then to the rest of the world. So they're really positive, right? They're worshiping God. Perhaps there would be the serpent, one of these brothers, Cain, I have gotten, would be the serpent crusher, the one to crush Satan's skull. Perhaps he would be the one who loves God, lives underneath his lordship, and champions over evil. And here, here it seems that that's what they're doing. They're offering sacrifices to the Lord. But look what happens there in verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering... But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. So people throughout, Christians throughout history have wondered, what exactly does it mean that he had regard for Abel's offering and not Cain's? Like, what's the difference there? Some people say, well, okay, well, Abel, clearly he's, he's shedding blood. So offerings, sacrifices, they require a shedding of blood. And he's giving the firstborn of his flock, so basically the best. You know, it's like when you receive a paycheck, you acknowledge everything you own is God's. And so the first bit of that paycheck, the first thing you go and do is you give it back to God. So if you're, if you're growing crops, you're going to take some of those crops and say, this Lord is for you. The very first things. Or you can think about it, you're like your devotions, for example. You wake up and you want to give the first fruits of your day to God. Um, but, but here, Abel... You know, some people have said that, that God looks upon, with favor upon his offering because there is a shedding of blood. But I don't think that's a legitimate uh, explanation there for why Cain's offering isn't accepted. The reason why is because later on, when God actually has Moses write down the law, it includes offerings of the ground. So not all offerings need to have the shedding of blood. Of course, we do know as well that the shedding of blood uh, washes away sin. But here, I think this is a legitimate offering here of the ground. Some people also say um, that Cain didn't bring the first fruits of his harvest, whereas Abel did. Because it's stated specifically, I mean, he's giving the, the firstborn of his flock, but not only that, the fat portions. Okay, so now in this day and age where everyone's drinking smoothies, including myself, they certainly don't include fat. But back then, fat portions, you know, were the delectable portions. And we know this, too, from some of our cuisine so, for example, in Chinese tradition, there's this one dish where, you know, basically the more fat you've got, the more fat layers you've got, you know, the, the more delectable the dish is. I mean, it's, so still today, it's, it's revealed in some of our, in some of the way that we prepare, prepare our cuisine. But I don't think that that's clear either. What is clear here is that Abel is offering up his sacrifice in faith. And that's what the New Testament says. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, and we're trying to figure out what's the difference here. Why does God regard one over the other? Hebrews 11, verse 4. Now, this is known as the Hall of Faith, where, where the author of the Hebrews just recounts all of these people and how they, upon faith, acted and pursued God. And he says there in verse 4, by faith, Abel offered 
Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So the presumption there is is Abel's offering his gift, his offering in faith, whereas Cain then is not. And that's another thing that's really clear in the passage. Cain's heart is just corrupt. He's arrogant. He's proud. He's insolent. And we're going to see this. His heart just isn't there. Abel's heart, on the other hand, is there. Cain, since his heart isn't, it seems that he's just going through the motions. And this explains Cain's response, right? It says there, back in Genesis chapter 4, go ahead and turn there. It says, it says so Cain was very angry and his face fell. And his face is a reflection of his heart, right? I mean, even the posture that we, that we carry ourselves with is a reflection of our heart. And he's angry that God didn't accept his sacrifice. Now, this speaks volumes here. Here, Cain approaches his creator and sustainer on Cain's own terms. Cain, even though he's created by this magnificent, all-powerful, almighty, eternal, infinite God, yet Cain sort of brings his offerings to God on his own terms. I did this, and therefore it ought to be accepted. I'm sure you guys know what it's like for your faces to fall. I mean, just think about, you know, when, if you're a parent, when you tell your child that he shouldn't be doing something and you see his face fall, his shoulders sort of slump over. Or when you yourself were a child and your parents told you you couldn't do something. And so your face falls. It's just a reflection of your heart. And in the midst of anger and disappointment, what Cain needs most is what? He needs help, right? He needs help. He needs encouragement. His face that has now fallen needs to be lifted up. And so it is with us, or as it is with us, so it is with Cain. You know, just imagine Cain is discouraged, deeply discouraged, and even angered. Something in his worship has gone wrong. Something in his heart has gone wrong. And he's disappointed. And God knows this. Go ahead and look there at 6 and 7. Here we see God's kindness in his counsel. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? There accepted could also be translated. If you do well, will you not be lifted up? Because his face has fallen. If you do well, if you love me, if you follow my commands, will not your face be happy? He says. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You see that beautiful picture of God the Father there? And again, how, he, how he's approaching his creation. And here this, this weak, willed, suffering, angered, discouraged child. God then draws near to him and lifts him up. We have this book called uh, Shepherding a Child's Heart. It's a book on parenting. Uh, And and in it, the author talks about all the ways in which we parents uh, are tempted to boil down parenting to three basic things, unfortunately. He says that we, we all boil down parenting to rules, correction, and discipline. So if something goes wrong, you just repeat the rule. I told you you shouldn't do that. You correct them. Next time, don't do that. 
and then you might go ahead and discipline them. Further scolding, etc. But the author there says that there are so many different ways that a parent, a grandparent, a caretaker can be encouraging their child through biblical communication, ways of encouragement, ways of speaking. And here we see a beautiful model in God the Father. So if you are a parent or if you are desiring to be a parent, this here speaks to you. I mean, what does God do to Cain, who is so discouraged? He's slumped over. Well, he draws him out by questions. God lays out an entreaty or a humble request. And he says, do well. God teaches, right? He's instructing, he's instructing Cain. He talks to him about the nature of sin. This is what I want you to know about sin. And then he warns at the same time, watch out for sin. And then he encourages him, do well. And then he gives him a charge. I want you to rule over sin. So there's so many different ways here that God is drawing near to Cain, this discouraged boy, like the good and perfect father would. All those different ways. I mean, he's questioning, he's entreat, he's giving him entreaty, he's teaching, he's warning, he's encouraging him, and he's charging. It's amazing to see here God's complexity in his parenthood as he deals with people so patiently. And kindly. Here God comes to Cain's aid and he knows exactly what he needs and he knows exactly how to say it. Cain learns a lot about sin here, doesn't he? And so do we. Presumably he knows, right? Right as he's facing this anger and this discouragement that he's in, he thinks probably back to Adam and Eve, his parents, when they were first tempted by Satan. And so he has that that story in his mind about how this talking serpent deceived them by twisting God's word, getting them to doubt the character and the word of God. But here he learns that sin can actually be a lot more aggressive. Not only is he subtly twisting things, but he's actually crouching at the door, Satan is. Sin, God says, is crouching at your door. I mean, this is intense imagery. Um... There's a time when, if you guys have uh, ever owned cats or dogs, you guys know this imagery here. When it talks about sin crouching at your door. For a period of time, um, me and Melanie lived with a family that had, I think, multiple cats. Like two cats and one dog. And they were a lot of fun to play with. Uh, and so, you know, these cats, if you're playing with a little chew toy, you know, or, or you wind up the rat so that it would go ahead and move. You know, the cat has his eyes dead set on that thing. And it crawls up really close to it. And every movement, you can tell its head is just engaged, totally fixed on this thing. And this other family, this family that we live with, they had a Whippet, which is basically a miniature Greyhound. Uh, and those things are fast. And we had this red laser light. And uh, when we would shine it, the dog would just wake up and then just be running all over the place. And then we would shine it in the backyard and the dog would just zip around following the thing. You turn it off and it stops. And then you turn it on and, it, and then it's like full-blown chasing this thing. It's nuts. And here, God says that with just as much attention, just as much readiness, so sin is ready to pounce on us. Crouching at the door. Or you can think of another imagery, right? You think of this larger animal that if you wake it, you are surely in trouble. Because then at any first glimpse of motion towards its direction, or any motion at all, It pounces on it, ready to destroy, devour. Which is why Peter says, 
in the passage that Pastor Rick read earlier, the devil, your adversary, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is active here. It's not just passive. This is active. He actively is prowling around looking for someone to eat. And look at what God does here. Like the highest general of the land, he gives Cain the battle plan. Maybe he might be, right? The serpent crusher. He says, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Interesting, we've seen these, this pair of verbs before. Desire and rule. We've seen it in Genesis 3.16, where God judges Eve for sinning. And he says, your desire, there's that word again, desire shall be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And so we're helped to understand what that verse meant by looking here at this verse. Sin desires to bully man. It desires to rule him, to have control over him, to dominate him. But then God says, you must rule over that. And you see God's kindness everywhere in this passage too. Right? Not only is God speaking in so many multifaceted ways to encourage this, this young discouraged boy who's faced with his own anger. But then yet he gives him this battle plan. And then he also says, look, you have a sinful desire to rule over your wife. Now let me show you the proper realm in which you are to use all of that energy. And an appropriate righteous anger. It is over sin and satan you desire to rule over weaker people now i want you to rule over this this is the right thing that you are to rule over that's the battle plan as one puritan pastor put it be killing sin or it will be killing you that's what he's supposed to do so we're still supposed you know as we're reading the story we're still on our the edge of our seats Will this be the promised serpent crusher? Look there in verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. Okay, that's a good thing. Is he going to ask for help in battling sin? Is he going to confess his sin and say, look, I need you to help me. I need you to help me move towards repentance before God. And then it goes on. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him it's shocking how fast that story turns isn't it i mean this guy was just with god he was just encouraged by god he was just warned by god and instructed by god and charged by god to rule over satan and sin but in an instant it says he rose up against his brother and killed him what goes on in the mind of a murderer why kill Abel? Right, he's supposed to rule over sin, but he rules over his brother. What good does killing his brother do? What does it accomplish? I mean, his problem really isn't with his brother, right? His problem is with himself. And more importantly, it's with himself before God. So why kill Abel? I think um, it's because as long as Abel is alive... Uh, Cain would be forever reminded of how far his heart had fallen before God. Cain stands there as the bar that forever would remind him, so long as he is alive, 
of how far he had fallen. I mean, it's amazing, right, that this sin is not a sin where, you know, Abel cooks a better stew than me, and so I'm going to kill him. This is worship to God. And so Cain is looking at Abel, and he says his worship to God is better than my worship to God. (laughs) And I therefore need to kill him. It's kind of odd. But I think we all know this. We, We know a little bit about this. So if you guys want to identify with Cain's heart here, just a little bit. You can think back to the time when you guys had to take tests and your test was graded on a curve. And there was always that one person, that one person who set the curve. This would be like my wife. I certainly was down here at the bottom of the curve. But this would be, you know, someone intelligent, someone smart, someone studious, someone to do everything that the professor says to do. And so what do they do? They study. They do exactly what the professor says. They go over and beyond what the professor says and they memorize everything. And then so when you get the test back, you realize that you, even though you studied hard, got a B or a C. Shame. And what's your opinion then of the of the curve center? Melanie. Oh, if she didn't study so hard, then I would have gotten an A, right? And so there's that, that gut reaction to think that it's her fault. Is the same thing that Cain's thinking. But that's absolutely ridiculous, right? Because the curve setter, by God's grace, is able to do what the professor required. Is able to absorb all of that information and able to spit it all back out. There is no fault on the curve setter. For Abel and his worship, we know that his his worship there is driven by the Spirit himself. That enables him to worship and to believe in faith and to offer up these great sacrifices but that desire to point the finger and say it's that person's fault, even though that person didn't do anything, is what Cain feels here. For Cain, murder, that is wiping his brother off the face of the planet, is all, it seems, it's all just a cover-up. It's all a cover-up, a grand attempt to live his fabricated life, a life where before God he says, I am okay. And he thinks the problem is with Abel and not himself. This is certainly not biblical peacemaking. It's amazing, too, to see here that, um, that your relationship with God affects what you do here on the earth with other people. So you have the horizontal aspect, sorry, the, the vertical aspect, that automatically affects the horizontal aspect. If this is messed up, naturally Cain sets the, sets the pattern, this here will be messed up. But if this is good, if this is right, then this here will be good. There's this other book um, called Peacemakers. It's a really helpful book. And it helps, us, it helps us understand and pursue what true biblical peacemaking is before God and then also before other people. So seeking peace with God, what does that involve? It involves, well, confession of sin. It re- involves repentance, acknowledge of, acknowledgement of my sin before God. It involves reconciliation. So Cain does not do that. But then outside of this biblical peacemaking, you have here peace faking, he calls it, the author. Ken Sandy calls it. So if this is peacemaking, reconciliation, forgiveness, confession, everything outside of that is peace faking. Uh, And so you have escape responses. Now, this is Adam and Eve, right? Because they ran from God and they were hiding So everything outside on this side are escape responses and they seek peace supposedly by running away from situations. Okay, so if you guys live in denial, 
this is you, peace faking. So you say, really, there is no problem, I am fine. Maybe you run away, literally, and you escape, and you pull away from relationships when there's conflict. You give people, let's say, the silent treatment, which is a much more subtle way of murdering someone, wiping them off the face of the planet, at least in your own mind. Maybe you quit your job. Okay, so this is Adam and Eve. They flee. They run away from conflict. Instead of getting right with God, they flee. And then uh, the most extreme there is suicide. God surely can't take care of my problem. And so the only thing left for me to do is to kill myself. That's peace faking. And then you have attack responses. If this, if this, if this stuff over here are escape responses, these responses over here are attack responses. So you have assault if something is wrong, you go after God. You hate him. Or with people, you verbally, you verbally abuse them. Maybe you physically hurt them. And then, of course, the most extreme there is murdering someone. The problem is so bad, God cannot deal with it. And the only option I have left to go with is murder. To kill someone to make sure that problem goes away forever. You know, philosophers do this too. To God. So Frederick Nietzsche, the philosopher, he said, declared, as if he could, in his pride, God is dead. He's doing the same exact thing. Attack responses. Not seeking to bring his heart underneath God, but instead fakes peace. Cain here is a peace faker too. He is a peace faker. This here is not the serpent crusher. But the brother killer, he is very much on attack mode. And interestingly enough, he's very much on pursuing the escape responses too because he's lying here before God. Unfortunately, we know that he doesn't have a brother problem, right? His problem is not with his brother. His problem is with himself and he has no heart for God. I mean, outside of Eden, things are a lot worse, aren't they? Here's Cain, he's outside of Eden, and things are much worse. Adam and Eve may have blamed, or Adam may have blamed his wife, but here Cain kills his own brother. And unfortunately, as we go on through the book of Genesis, at some point in time, as we look at Genesis chapters 12 and on, we see here that this sibling rivalry continues. So you can think of Abraham's children, for example, or his sons, Isaac and Ishmael. That's sibling rivalry. You can think of Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau. Even in the womb, there was sibling rivalry. And then you can think of Jacob's sons, Joseph and his brothers. But this here is not merely about civil, uh, sibling rivalry and fratricide, that is a brother killing another brother. This has to do with God. So fundamentally, this is a rivalry between the seed of the serpent that is, those who walk after Satan and sin, and then the seed of the woman, those who follow God. And the enmity here is all about that ultimate battle. Let's turn now and look at verses 9 to 16, and we see there that God calls Cain to account. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? Again, there you see God drawing near to this discouraged, angered, sinful child, asking him a question. Where is your, where is Abel, your brother? And then Cain flat out denies it. I do not know. Escape response. So in the garden, Adam and Eve hid 
And then when God calls them to account, you know, they're not exactly telling the truth. They're sort of sidestepping it. But they're sort of telling the truth, right? I hid because I was naked. And still, I mean, they're still dodging. But here with Cain, here stands a son of Adam out in the open, not hiding at all. Blatantly lying to his creator and sustainer. And then he brushes off all responsibility. Am I my brother's keeper? And this would make any parent's heart fall, right? Because he knows exactly where his brother is. He is the one who lured him out into the fields. And then he is the one that buried him there. Am I my brother's keeper? I do not know where he is. And then we see God, you know, first he intervenes with encouragement. And then the story changes with one desire of Cain. And then God has to intervene, not with counsel, but with judgment. Look there in verse 10. He says, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So he's concerned about the innocent shedding of the, the shedding of innocent blood. And then he curses him. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. So with Adam, God cursed the ground so that he would toil painfully. But here, regardless of the amount of toil that Cain puts in, the earth wouldn't yield a thing to him. And we're hoping that, yes, you know, we want so much for Cain, even though he might not be the serpent crusher. We want him to have a tender heart, a softened heart, responsive to God, his father. Hope We hope for his confession. We hope for honesty. But in Cain's defense, just sort of secures his own judgment and condemnation. And look how he responds there in 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on earth and whoever finds me will kill me. He's like a child here who is called out on his sin and still is refusing to confess it and seek reconciliation with God. He's concerned, did you notice, not with his heart before God, but with the actual punishment. The actual punishment, and there's a time when I had to call out some students on cheating, and uh, and I had to address the issue, and they kept on making excuses, like excuse after excuse after excuse, and you know what one of them asked me? They said, is what, they said, what is going to happen? They didn't ask, you know, so what does God think of me even though I lie? They didn't wonder, so how, what exactly should I be confessing in terms of my sin so that I could be restored to God? They said, so what's going to happen to my grade? Sadly here, that's exactly what Cain is doing. He's filing a complaint with God. Even though he's the one who's clearly sinning and stands guilty before an all-righteous God. Everything in Cain is misdirected. Where he was supposed to have love for God, he has hatred towards his brother. When he's supposed to triumph over sin, he triumphs over his brother in sin. Even in discipline, when he's supposed to be concerned about his heart before God, he complains about the severity of punishment. Someone's going to kill me. This is too much for me to bear, he says. But then, of course, you know, he's given over to sin. And you know the life cycle of sin. It stems from your passions and your desires inside your heart. It gives birth to other things and it leads to death. So he, of course, given over to sin, he ought to fear because he knows what's inside of his heart and so he therefore knows what is in everyone else's heart if i have killed my brother 
surely they are capable of the exact same thing. He's given over to fear. The question is, what does a patient God do? What does your God do in the middle of your sin? What does a merciful God do? Look there in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, not so, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So here he puts a mark on Cain. We don't really know what it is. I, I guess, like to think of it as a tattoo. And it's supposed to be a visible mark so that other people would know that they are not supposed to kill Cain here. So you see, you see uh, Cain being Cain. Rejecting, running, attacking. And you see God being God. Pursuing, being kind, drawing near, near in his gentleness, in his kindness, in his love, and in his mercy. He preserves Cain. And then verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, which interestingly means wandering or wanderer, east of Eden. This here is a devolution of man under the grip of sin. It's the downward spiral of sin. Man under the grips of sin. And you see Cain here walking in the ways of his father. You know, if you're visiting with us today and you know yourself not to follow Jesus, you know that the Bible says that this all is in us. What is in Cain and what is in Adam and Eve. And we ought to be comparing ourselves with Cain. But not in a way that says, well, Cain murdered and I don't murder. Jesus in the book of Matthew says, look, if you, even though you've never physically murdered anyone, if you've hated in your heart, you have indeed murdered. And so there you see the comparison of hearts. God says, you find yourself here in this book. So if you're identifying with Abel, you're reading the story wrong. Here we're supposed to identify with Cain. It's all about Cain. Abel is referred to Cain as his brother. He doesn't really show up here as the main guy. It's Cain that this story is about. And we find a reflection, a mirror right here in Genesis chapter 4. And what is in Cain is in us. Romans 3 says, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Haven't you guys ever looked in the mirror and thought and reflected, why do I do the nasty things that I do? You guys ever wondered that? Or maybe you respond and you do some sort of sin, you do something and you say, where did that come from? Why did I do that? And I know the world would have you not take responsibility of your actions. I mean, maybe after doing something, after sinning, you apologize, apologize, and you say, you know what, I'm so sorry for the way I made you feel. That's not an apology. That's saying, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to take ownership because, hey, you felt this way. I didn't really do anything. It's all about your feelings. And then maybe you go on and say, I'm sorry for saying that. That just wasn't me. I used to use that line all the time. That just wasn't me. That's Cain right there. That's Adam. It's like, I'm not doing anything here. That's just not me. That's an Adam confession, a Cain confession, running away from God, telling straight up lies, rejecting all responsibility for your sin. And that's exactly what gets Adam and Eve in trouble and exactly what gets Cain in trouble. God wants us all, whether you're a Christian, a non-Christian, I would say especially the, the Christian, to take ownership of your wrongdoing. 
And so in an apology, you don't say, I'm so sorry for the way I made you feel. You don't say, I'm so sorry that just wasn't me. You say, yes, that was me. I am a murderer and I am a liar. So when I lost, I'm committing adultery against you. And so when I hate and when I'm angry against you, I actually want to murder you. We take ownership and we then therefore can confess specifically. We confess with specificity. We don't just say generally, hey, you know, I'm sorry for these things. We say, you know, in this one particular sin, when I was so frustrated and so angry with you and I actually cursed against you, that was me being like Cain. Will you forgive me? And it's amazing because that person, if they're a believer, also sees themselves in Cain too. And they say, you know what? I am just like that. I know exactly what that feels. Now, how exactly do we join hands and move forward to the cross of Christ? Where we know once again that Jesus Christ forgives as he came to earth to destroy the grip of Satan and sin and therefore wins reconciliation for us. The greater Adam, the second Adam who undoes everything that Adam did. And so he makes all things new, including the earth. He brings reconciliation between men and women and different races and different classes. And then he restores us before God, the father. And so when you've got two people finding their identity and saying, yes, I am Cain, but by God's grace, I am a Christian and I follow Jesus by the spirit's power and I trust in the cross. Then all of a sudden, those two people are finding themselves in the same situation and walking in the same direction, heading once again to a God who is merciful, patient, a God who draws near. Jesus tells of a story that encourages us to take ownership for our sin. He says two men go up to the temple to worship God and God saves one of them. It isn't the one who sees no need for salvation, but it is the one who says, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is exactly why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so offensive, isn't it? Because if anyone is going to have forgiveness of sin, if anyone is going to go to the cross in faith, they must acknowledge their need for Jesus to die for them. In other words, that they are indeed guilty. That's why it's offensive. But to us who believe, it really is the power of God, a manifestation, the gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ is a manifestation, the ultimate manifestation, the pinnacle of God's grace and mercy shown to man. The question then is, have we turned to God and do we find ourselves here in the book of Genesis chapter 4. Jesus calls everyone to repent of their sins. That is turn from their sins and believe on him. And so in Exodus he proclaims the beauty of his name. And says God is I am merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. But, you know, we know we've stared here at the Father and how wonderful he is as he draws near to his people in patience and kindness. But yet we ought not take his mercy for granted. Even if you are a Christian struggling with sin right now, do not take God's mercy for granted. While he is merciful, he is also just. And this speaks to the non-Christian. He will by no means clear the guilty. That is, those who see no need for God's forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy, and his love. So again, if you are visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a believer, are you tired of living your Cain-like life? Anger, which leads to sin, 
which lead to lies, which leads to fear. Where are you in your own life, your heart life, the devolution of your life and your heart, the downward spiral? Where are you in your lies? And you realize that once you start piling on lies, you just kind of pile on more to live out your facade. The wonderful thing is God calls you to repent of those things. And he offers salvation to anyone and everyone who would turn from their sins and believe. It's amazing here that this first, the sin here outside the garden is murder. And God in his grace and his providence and his sovereignty with thousands of years later used that same evil heart to bring about his wonderful plan of salvation. That he would use all of the evil hearts of the Jews and the Romans to kill and crucify the king, the king of the Jews. So that his great plan of salvation would be fulfilled. On the cross, Jesus bears our wrath and the punishment that we deserve. And those who believe are freed from sin and freed from their Cain-like life. Well, Genesis 4 shows us as one downward spiral in the wickedness of man, not only in the story of Cain and Abel, but then in Cain's descendants as well. Now, we're going to go through this briefly, very briefly. Look at Genesis chapter 4, 17 to 22. This here is Cain's descendants, and eventually the story of lineage, lineage lands on a man named Lamech, the fifth generation of Cain. And just as Cain walked in his father's shoes, so Lamech is walking in his old great-grandfather's shoes. Lamech is bold and he's brash. Look there in verse 19. He goes ahead and he breaks God's commands and he says, I'm going to take two wives instead of one wife. We have a redefinition of marriage there in Genesis chapter four. Interesting, isn't it? And then we also see here that he too would be known for the shedding of man's blood. This is in verses 23 to 24. He says there, Lamech said to his wives. Now, keep in mind, this is a boast, okay? He gathers this, this audience and he says, Adam Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. You know, I mean, who's, <laughs> who talks to themselves? Who talks to their wives in the third person? Uh, listen to what Jeremy has to say. He says, if Cain's or I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Which means here that here, this young boy, this lad, it says this young man struck him. And then he goes and kills him. And he says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If even though, so, if God is going to say, look, if anyone kills Cain, I will take out justice and revenge sevenfold on that person, upholding perfect justice. Lamech comes around and says in, in this poetic language, he says, my revenge is seventy-sevenfold. I don't need God's justice, God's revenge. I take it upon myself. And he therefore strikes a young man. This here is bold and brash in the face of God. One, rem one is reminded of when Jesus told his disciples, how many times ought I to forgive those who sin against me? And he says, 77 fold. L Lamech here says, has no need for God. No need for his entreaties, no need for his warnings, his encouragements, his commands, his judgment, his protection, his justice. Lamakir boasts of his own fiction. He's a self-made man. It's actually the very opposite of the truth that we've seen here thus far in Genesis. As all mankind is dependent on this independent God, the God of the Bible. So to, so to conclude, what happens here? 
With Adam, Cain, and Lamech is the hardening of their hearts. Pride and arrogance. Waywardness. And it's a real life parable. A historical parable of what happens in our own hearts. Desires of our hearts give birth to sin. And gives birth to death, as it says in James. And if anyone is to be saved and reconciled to God, it is because God will do it. And he does this in Jesus Christ and the Spirit, who softens our hearts to see our need for the Savior. The question is, will you walk in the ways of Cain or in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, what a wonderful, beautiful Father you are. Patient in all your ways, kind, just, compassionate, loving, merciful, wise. And in all those things, Lord, your righteousness and your holiness are never corrupted or diminished. But Lord, we thank you that all of those attributes are upheld 100% of the time and at 100% capacity. So Lord, we see that you are holy and loving and there we see that at the cross as you die, as you sent your son to die on the cross for sins. And yet you are at the same time just and holy and righteous as you punish sins as well. So Lord, we pray that we would be not like Cain but that we would cast all of our cares and anxieties at your feet, knowing that in due time you will lift us up, even in the midst of trials and temptations. So, Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who triumphs over sin and death for us and does for us what we could never do. In your name we pray. Amen.